Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Kate Nutting, producer of Lawyer to Lawyer. While Craig is away on a much-needed vacation, we're going to do things a little bit differently this time and share with you a fantastic episode from the Chicago Bar Association's At The Bar podcast. This episode is Defending Against Domestic Violent Extremism, a discussion with Brian Michael Jenkins. Host Jonathan Amarillo spoke with one of the world's leading authorities on terrorism and the man famously known for predicting 9-11, Brian Michael Jenkins of the RAND Corporation. You can find more great At The Bar episodes on the Legal Talk Network site or wherever you find podcasts. We'll also include a link in the description. Here's the episode. We hope you enjoy it. Hello, everyone, and welcome to CBA's At The Bar, a podcast where we have unscripted conversations with our guests about legal news, topic stories, and whatever else strikes our fancy. I'm your host, John Amarillo of Taft Law, and joining me on the pod today is Brian Michael Jenkins of the RAND Corporation. Brian is something of a legend in the field of counterterrorism. A former Green Beret and Fulbright scholar, he exchanged the MK for an MA and went on to become the chair of the political science department at RAND one of the nation's most respected and influential think tanks. Among other positions, Brian has served on the White House Commission to Aviation Safety and Security as an advisor to the National Commission on Terrorism and as an advisory board member to the U.S. Comptroller General. He is currently a senior advisor to the president of RAND and, not coincidentally, has served as an advisor to nearly every president of the United States since, well, about when I was born. (laughs) He is, however, perhaps best known as the man who predicted 9-11. Brian is here to talk with us today about his most recent work developing a pragmatic strategy for countering domestic political violence, something I know all of our listeners will be interested in as it directly relates to preserving the rule of law. Brian, welcome to At The Bar. Thank you very much, John. So, uh, Brian, before we get started, I have to ask something that's you know arguably a little bit off topic. But as I was doing my research, my due diligence for this interview today, I kept coming across references to you as, as I said in the intro, the man who predicted 9-11. Talk to me about that. What gives you that moniker? It, it's actually incorrect. I didn't predict 9-11. It, it, it's simply that in constantly uh, listening carefully to what terrorists were saying in looking at the documents that were found at, at terrorist hideouts in various parts of the world, in looking at all of that, it became apparent that the idea of hijacking an airplane and crashing it into a city, crashing it into buildings, mm-hmm. uh, was something that was on their mind. It wasn't necessarily a, a concrete plan. It was more aspirational. Okay. But certainly we, we did see a number of cases. For example, in the 1980s, one of the hijackings or attempted hijackings in 1986 the original plan was to hijack the plane in Pakistan and then fly it and crash it into Tel Aviv. Mm. Things like that kept reoccurring. In 1995, there was a so-called Bojinka plot that was discovered in the Philippines where jihadist terrorists had planned to conceal bombs in about 11 or 12 airliners flying across the Pacific But another part of that same plan was to crash a plane into CIA headquarters. So this was bouncing around in their minds. And I simply started saying in the 1980s, you know, we do have to accept the possibility that at some time in the future, terrorists 
will attempt to hijack a plane and crash it into into a tall building or an urban area. And from that, of course, when 9-11 occurred, people went back and they found those old mentions and said, aha, he predicted it. No, he thought about it because the terrorists thought about it. Why weren't they listening to you then? You know, in, in part, uh, there was a reluctance uh, to listen to that because it was such a horrendous scenario and you know, what can we do about that? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I remember in terms of the 1993 World Trade Center bombing, I was then at Kroll Associates, and, and we were called in to assist in helping them deal with the crisis and design new security measures. And I was placed in charge of the red team, the bad guys. Right. And the real hero of this story is is a gentleman by the name of Charlie Makish, who was the... Uh, the manager of the World Trade Center, and he said, whatever Brian and his team come up with, the blue team, which were engineers, security specialists, architects, have to have some kind of a response. Mm -hmm. And so we had a number of charts showing events that occurred regularly but would not be catastrophic and damaged, things that would be more, uh, more damaging but less likely. And then we had one set of charts that things that were really black swans, if you will, statistically, but could have catastrophic consequences. The first bullet on that slide was plane crashing into one of the towers. Now, why did we think about that? I thought about that because there had been an old case where a B-25 bomber flying in the fog had crashed into the side of the Empire State Building. Oh, right. Wasn't inconceivable. This created a ferocious argument between the red team and the blue team because the blue team said, well, what can we do about that? I mean, mount missile batteries on top of the, you know, windows of the world restaurant on 110th floor and shoot down you planes. You could have security at airports. Yes. I mean, that's, that's one thing. And that was, that was inadequate, quite frankly, at the time. But it did ultimately lead to a careful analysis that they decided that in 1993, it took seven hours to evacuate the tower. Wow. What had happened is the bomb went off in a subgrade parking, smoke went up through the stairwells. They did not have the emergency lighting, and so in pitch black, smoke-filled stairwell, people had to climb down, in some cases, 100 floors. They came out of the building into a snow flurry looking like coal miners coming off shift. Fortunately, only six people were killed in that attack, but about a 1,000 were injured, mainly smoke inhalation. So was the attitude just fatalistic? No, the attitude was what we can do is we can get people out of this building a lot faster than we did in 1993. And so they modified the stairwells. They conducted regular drills where an an evacuation marshal would take people down at least a couple flights of stairs. And on the morning of 9-11, when there was probably an estimated 15,000, 20,000 people in the towers, in less than an hour, they, they got them all out. Saved a lot of lives. Everyone below the floor where the planes went in, in fact, got out. Those who were cut off above, unfortunately, went down with the towers. But we thought in, in, in looking at that event when the towers went down, 
we thought, we've just lost 20,000 people here. Yeah. And it wasn't until the following days and weeks that the death toll went downward as little by little people realized, no, more got out. No, that one's okay. That yeah, I remember the okay. initial uh, estimates. They were saying 10,000 people. Yeah. And I think yeah. the final count was somewhere closer to 3,000, something 2, like that. 2,000, okay. 2, about yeah. 2,200 or so. Let's shift over to something yeah. that um, I hope people will be listening to even more closely on. You had a feature late last year in West Point Sentinel discussing the elements of what you see as a pragmatic strategy, emphasis on pragmatic, for countering domestic political violence. So let's go there. You know, this is a topic that seems to be in the news at ever-increasing rates these days, be it stories about the January 6th riot at the Capitol, kidnapping and assassination plots of, you know, the Michigan governor comes to mind, politically motivated mass shootings, which, you know, sadly are becoming a almost regular event now. Obviously, all this directly bears on, you know, not only the viability of our democracy, but the rule of law. But before we dive into the solutions, I, I guess I want to talk a little bit about the problem first. So my first question is, is there a problem? I mean, I think there's a huge problem, but am I misperceiving anything there, or are things getting worse when it comes to acts of domestic political violence? No, there is there is a serious problem. However, let's let's try to disaggregate it a little bit and look at its component parts. In terms of total number of deaths, we're not seeing the kind of high body count that we saw, of course, on 9-11. Yeah. And in fact, according to a recent report by the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, their estimate is that between 2010-2021, 155 people were killed by domestic right-wing extremists in this country. Now, there are a handful of casualties caused by left-wing extremism, but left-wing extremists in the United States tend to be less lethal than the far right. Yeah, they're not armed like they, the far right. And, and they blow up things rather than sure. try to kill people, right. whereas, whereas the right-wing extremists have these genocidal fantasies and, mm -hmm. and uh, may be involved in mass shootings, or in the case of Oklahoma City in 1995, right. you know, a, a mass murder with, with a bomb. Now, 155, of course, is, is every single death is tragic, and I don't want to sound callous about this, but during that same period of time, 200,000 Americans were the victims of ordinary homicide mm -hmm. in the United States. So we're talking about the political violence component of that being something like one-tenth of one percent. So why do you think it takes up so much oxygen in the public discourse? It is in part... There is a conflation of the homicide rate, the mass shootings, and the political violence. And people don't make distinctions between those as different categories. They see this as, as evidence of a very violent society, and mm -hmm. America is historically a very violent society. Yeah, well, the, the second part of it, though, is, is a legitimate concern because there is, a, I think, a sense of of foreboding, not what we're seeing now, but where is this going? I mean, 43% right. of the American people, according to the latest polling data, believe that there will be a civil war in this country within 10 years. I'm glad you took it there. Um, have we been here before at an inflection point like this? I mean, putting aside the U.S. Civil War, which I think you know is the obvious one, I'm thinking of like the anarchist movement in the late 19th and early 20th century, 
the KKK and the, you know, during Reconstruction all the way probably through the middle of the 20th century left, you know, for being nonpartisan about it, leftist movements in the 60s and 70s. Is this, is this different? It, it is different in one sense, but you, you, you make a good point here, and, and that is these things have happened before in our history. There probably isn't a major social or political movement in the last 150 years that has not been accompanied by a violent edge. So if mm. you go back to the last decades of the 19th century and the first decades of the 20th century, the U.S. labor movement, of course, sure. the dynamite conspiracy, the way the Haymarket riots, the Haymarket, yeah. uh, you know, bombings and, and right. things of this sort. And again, if you look at the, uh, the civil rights movement, on both sides right. in that, there were acts of violence. And the 1960s was, you know, one of the most recent, most turbulent decades. We saw mm -hmm. assassinations, riots in cities, and a tremendous amount of political turmoil. Clearly, opposition to the Vietnam War, which was a mass movement, you know, spawned off on its extremist uh, fringes, groups like the Weather Underground and others that were dedicated to bombing campaigns. So that part is, again, not new. We have been there before. Yeah. And that gives us some hope that we will again, because of our high tolerance for violence in American society and because of the resilience of our institutions, we will get through it. Yeah. I mean, that's encouraging. But like, it, those examples that you're listing off, like it occurs to me as you're saying them that they had very limited political objectives, right? Anti-war movement, end the war. Okay, no more need for an anti-war movement there. Civil rights movement, you know, the outer edges of that. Pass the Civil Rights Act, you know, uh, implement other similar reforms, take some of the edge off that. The right-wing extremists that we're dealing with now, they have broader ambitions, don't they? You're, you're absolutely right again, it's, and it's a good question because in, in those cases, people were seeking changes in policy. Yeah. And therefore, the political system, which, which does have an enormous co-optive capacity, was able, in a sense, to address the issues and co-opt the potential constituency of the extremists. Right, that's a perfect way to put it, yeah. And, and whereas now, if we're talking about, you know, the extreme right in the United States today is, it, it's not a monolithic, uh, you know, organization. I mean, it's a, an assemblage of, of attitudes and, 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 and groups. And, yeah. and it's everything from, you know, uh, white supremacism, Christian identity, anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, anti-immigrant, right. anti-feminist, misogynist, and all of these coalescing in sort of a notion of anti-federal government because it's the federal government that, in a sense, is, is seen as the, as the avatar of these, of these various causes. And it's not a matter of changing a policy in, in, in the eyes of these people. Uh, they see themselves as facing marginalization, as facing even replacement, extinction. And therefore, this is about taking power. Yeah. Holding power. And they see it as an existential threat to their absolutely. dominance. And that is hard to, uh, you know, you, you, you can't compromise with, with hatred. Right. Now, 
However, I, I don't I mean, want we, we, we could substitute some nouns and pronouns there, and we'd be describing the Nazi movement in Germany in the 1930s. I don't, you know, I don't want to necessarily go there. I realize that's inflammatory, but I right. think it's accurate. And, and no, and I'm not going to go there either. But I also, however, don't want to toss the idea of addressing underlying grievances. Sure. Because, look, these currents of white nationalism, of, of anti-Semitism, these are continuing dark currents in, in American history. And that current widens or narrows depending on economic conditions, uh, other stresses in society. And, mm -hmm. and, and, it's, and it's, it's wide right now, unquestionably. But in part, that is driven by some underlying legitimate economic grievances. Look, as a consequence of automation, as a consequence of globalization, sure. we have destroyed a lot of jobs in this country. And, and, and people who, with school diplomas, were still able to find decent paying jobs. That's no longer the case. And even young people coming out of college today face a gig economy with right. Few prospects, and and with AI coming along, we're about to carve out another big portion of the labor force. Yeah, including lawyers, from what I've been reading. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, people people faced with economic hardship, people who cannot earn enough money to have a family or to support a family. People are put in in that type of a a situation, and and completely marginalized are not surprisingly angry people. Yeah. And that is the potential constituency of the, the extremists who would recruit them right. into these more, more dangerous attitudes and groupings. And so part of the, and when we think about this, we have to think about, well, how do we isolate the truly dangerous violent people from their potential constituency without turning half of the country into enemies of the state? I mean, that's, that's the big question, isn't it? No, that's, that is a huge challenge. And can, I mean, can we even do that in an era of hyper-partisan you know, TV news and things like that, where people are just going to their own preferred channel, network, news source, whatever you want to call it, and just getting nothing but confirmation bias and being part of a feedback loop. Like, how do you get through to people? That is a new element in the environment that did not exist previously. And yeah. that has we, had, we at least agreed on some facts before, basic facts. You know, we, in, in our media-saturated age, we are continuously pummeled by 24-7 cable news, by radio talk shows, by the internet, by social media, which is constantly, in a sense, intensifying our differences, yeah. determined to provoke outrage. Right. And they make money. That's how they make money. That's, that's how. Getting people angry and resentful and airing their grievances. Those translate into clicks. And right. Clicks translate into money. Right. So that is a new component, and, and we really haven't figured out yet how to address that. I mean, people want to do so, but, yeah. you know... Defamation lawsuits? You know, we have, yes, but <laughs> it's extremely difficult to do so. And the other problem is then, as this, 
as this violent edge, in a sense, becomes legitimatized and moves toward becoming a, a much broader movement, there is no bright shining line between the groups who are bellicose in their rhetoric, who are making threats, between the politicians in some cases with a wink and a nod right. are supporting this thuggish behavior. Or a raised fist. You know, or at the other end of it, you know, the, the malleable individual isolated on his own, his or her, but it's mainly his own, yeah. who then is a consumer of this and... Really, that's where the real danger of the violent behavior comes. It comes not from the mass groups. If they became a bomb maker, they'd be easier to deal with. Mm. But it comes from the fringes, and we see it in, in the mass shootings. You know, I mentioned that 155 people were killed. Half of those were killed in seven mass shootings. Wow. El Paso, Texas, you know. Uh, you name it. Other yeah. places, and, 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 yeah. and you can see that. Now... I don't want to get into the, the whole issue of the Second Amendment debate, but into that kind of a fragile and fraught environment, if you pour a massive quantity of weapons, right. we're going to have a fairly high level of violence, and at the same time, our society is having difficulties for a variety of reasons in just basically enforcing the law. Now... To go back to, to history, I mean, the good news in history is you can always find worse things that happened long ago. Yeah. You know, our, our murder rate in America precedes the creation of the republic. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the homicide rate in, in, in America before the republic was 20 times or more the homicide rate today. Okay. I didn't know that. And the reason for that is in part harsh frontier conditions. Sure. But it was also economic desperation. Lack of government. Lack of government, weak government that, right. that didn't have the capacity to enforce the law. Yeah. Very little sense of community. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, by looking at that, we say, look, what drove violence then drives it today. This is, this is not rocket science here. Yeah. Yeah. History may not be repeating, but it's rhyming. Right, right. And so we, we have to, as I say, going back to how one addresses this, one, you, you have to both, in a, in a very forceful manner, deal with those who are carrying out, contemplating, plotting acts of violence. Those are the guardrails. Yeah. And they have to be enforced. But you have to separate that, the enforcement of the law, from the concurrent bitter political differences that are affecting the country. That's a perfect place to take a break. We'll be right back. Learn by doing with Practicing Law Institute's award-winning on-demand interactive programs. Developed by experts in learning design, these immersive programs incorporate the latest in research-based instructional design and technology, allowing you to try out concepts, challenge yourself, and grow your skills using real-world scenarios. With programs focusing on professional development, 
client-facing skills, and law practice management, you can earn CLE while you learn. Launch now at pli.edu interactive or download PLI's mobile app. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at infotrack.com simple. And we're back. Brian, we left off and you were discussing the need to separate the politics from the violence. That brings a few things to mind. One of them is the language that we're using during this conversation. As I understand it, you really like labeling this as domestic political violence, not domestic terrorism. Does that go to what you were talking about, about separating the politics from the violence? That that certainly is, is part of it. Terrorism, we, we tried very carefully in, in the 1970s when terrorism, when we we're looking at international terrorism, in order to elicit international cooperation, we needed to agree upon a definition of, of terrorism. And, and so a, a great deal of effort was, was expended on deriving very precise definitions. However, terrorism was then and remains today a highly emotive term, a provocative term. It carries a lot of baggage mm. with it. And therefore, I don't think it's a particularly useful term. Now, the, the other problem is that in our criminal code, we don't have a standalone crime of terrorism. Right, it's an add-on. It's it's an enhancement. Yeah. So if one is convicted of an ordinary crime, but if it's in the furtherance of, you know, political goals aimed at at affecting government policy, then if one is convicted, one is in a higher sentencing category. But then we have separate from that hate crimes, mm -hmm. uh, which is another enhancement. This has caused some people to say, well, why don't we have a domestic terrorism law that would match our terrorism law for dealing with foreign terrorist organizations. Which, for all the criticism it's received, has been remarkably successful since 9-11 at stopping attacks. It, it has been effective. And, and certainly what they're really talking about is the material support provision that was part of the Patriot Act. And that basically said that anyone who provides support to a designated foreign terrorist organization is guilty of a crime. And, and the courts have, have really decided to define material assistance very broadly. Mm. So why don't we have one of those domestically? And, and part of the problem is... Yeah, just to re rephrase the question, why don't we treat these actors domestically the way we treat foreign terrorists? Right. So the, the issue, in order to get that law, we would have to designate domestic terrorist organizations. And there's the rub. There is indeed the rub. You can imagine in today's divided Congress, 
getting members of Congress to agree upon who are the terrorists. We'd right. either end up with about a thousand organizations. And in many cases, these aren't even organizations. These are movements and attitudes. Sure. Like uh, Antifa. Constellations, yeah. you know, not, right. not, not groups. Or even worse, we would get into an issue of, you know, political horse trading. You know, mm. you give me Proud Boys, I'll give you, uh, you know, I'll give you Antifa or yeah. something like that. I think it would be a complete distraction. Moreover, it politicizes the prosecutions. Now, when I refer to this generically as domestic political violence, my view is that focus on the crime, not on the cause. Don't get trapped in a discussion of motivations. And that's one of your solutions to that this problem. Is, that is an important point. Depoliticize the prosecutions. This is kidnapping. This is a plot to kidnap. This is an attempted murder. This is an assault. And that's the way we're going to go with it. Now, prosecutors are, are very pragmatic people. And already in the courts, in, in dealing with these cases, they don't often seek to apply the enhancement, yeah. the, the terrorism enhancement, because it's going to complicate things. You know, even if we go back to the Oklahoma City bombing, was it an act of terrorism? Certainly it was. Did anybody think about trying it that way? No. Timothy McVeigh was charged, convicted, and executed for killing eight federal officers in the building. Now, 168 people were killed, but... Right. Killing eight federal officers carried the death penalty, which is what the prosecutors sought. Had that somehow failed, there was a backup charge in state court of 168 counts of murder. Right. And it's just a lesson. Be, be practical here. Keep it in the realm of crime. To the extent that you move it into the realm of motivations and causes, the more likely it will go to trial— and all it takes is one juror, member of the jury. One, one juror is hiding a, his or her actual views. And you've got a hung jury. And you've got, yeah. So, you know, Merrick Garland, uh, the attorney general, has been catching a lot of flack lately for perceived, in some quarters, a perceived undercharging of the January 6th rioters. Do you view his approach as, you know, following your advice in this regard? I mean, he, he, he grew up with the Oklahoma City bombings, right? That was like how he made his name. Yes, Yes, no, he, he's experienced in this. So yeah. He's been around the block a few times on this, and, and that's fortunate at, at, at this time. There is, I mean, again, January 6th was, uh, had such an impact that there is a, a tendency, an understandable tendency of people saying, we want to throw the book at him. You right. know? And, and Make but, examples out of them. Right. Yeah. But I think in this particular case, a kind of a, a calm, resolute approach was best. I mean, uh, number one, the idea was not to create martyrs. Mm -hmm. let's, not, let's not create people who are perceived by many people in this country as political prisoners. Sure. And so uh, working through the large numbers, I think, you know, coming in with, with charges where, and, and in fact, being open to plea deals where you know, these things could be resolved fairly quickly rather than make this a protracted national crisis also made sense. 
Some others, uh, you know, were uh, those who it could be demonstrated, you know, harmed people, caused caused physical injury, were were given stiffer sentences. They they dug in their heels on those, and then what was interesting, and and I thought this was in fact a bold move, a seditious conspiracy charge, seditious conspiracy charge. Yeah. We haven't had a a good record in this country of charging right. people with seditious conspiracy. Yes, we did it when they were. You know, people involved in a conspiracy to blow up more targets in in New York after the World Trade Center bombing. Yeah, Aaron Burr got off. You know, but <laughs> in others that that was a that was a gamble, right? In a sense, and and that was it was successful. They did successfully, not against every single individual charged, but a sufficient number. That that is going to cause, you know, is really going to harm the organizations. So I think, in in a sense, it was a more discriminating approach. Yeah, this one we're not going to bother with, you know. And yeah, they, they we don't need custodial sentences on this. And and at the other end, some of these people really were planning on assaulting the United States political process, and those were going to go after. Okay, so with, with the exception of those, it seems to me a pillar of your pragmatic approach to addressing this problem is treating it as a crime rather than, I'll just say political crime as shorthand. What are some of the other solutions? You know, other solutions I say, I, I, let me come back to the point I made earlier and simply say that let's not give up the idea of, of co-option. There are some, uh, we, we, we can address back, the grievances. We, yeah. can, we can go after the constituency. So that's another one. So that's improving economic conditions, wages, that in, kind of in, thing. You know, in legitimate ways that we can, we can do so. I, I think we, we do have to address, and I don't have good solutions here, but we do have to address the change in the technological environment and how that has had some effect on the laws. I think the law on incitement is probably something that we would like to revisit, not so much the law, but how case law has interpreted that and made it extremely difficult. Let's dig into that a little bit. All um, right. What do you mean by that? Okay, incitement, I mean, uh, incitement is basically I am going to persuade someone else to carry out right. a crime. I'm going to instigate a crime. And when that law was first created, it was fairly straightforward. You get together in a, you know, in communications. Yeah. I want you to go shoot that person, and it is fairly straightforward. What the courts have done over time is to, in a sense, raise the barn to say, well, the communication, one, it has to be a very direct communication. Uh, it has to be in anticipation that your audience, your intended recipient of that message, will in fact do it imminently. Yeah. Otherwise, it's advocacy. I mean, right. if I say, you know, I think these are damn fools in Washington, we ought to get rid of them. Right. That's not incitement. So that's, now if you're the prosecutor, opinion. you've got to try to get inside and prove that person's mental state, which is incredibly it, difficult. Extreme, and you have to then on the other side show that the recipient of the message acted because that was the message they received right. and their motivations for doing so. This is the whole debate about what happened on January 6th. Right. And that is tough. I yeah. mean, I, I would say, you know, getting into an incitement charge, given the current in interpretation, that's difficult. The law does not take into account a couple of things. Number one, the source of the message. 
if a high-ranking important official or somebody who already is recognized as an influencer with millions of followers yeah. is saying that, that has different weight than Right. They know the power of their statements. It. Yeah. Yeah. The power of the statements. And then second, the ability to reach an audience of millions. Right. Now we're not talking about a couple of people getting together in a tavern to, you know, plot yeah. plot a crime. We're, we're, oh, I see. We're, okay. we're talking. We're talking. So that's a good point because you you could say it to let's say you have an audience of a million people and you know all I need is one or two of them to hear me a certain way. Right. And they'll do what I want. Right. And that gives them a hedge and that's, a defense. That's right. And so, how do we how do we address that in a way that recognizes the powers of these technologies, the powers of communication, and yet at the same time preserves free speech. that vital free speech. Yeah. So what's the answer? I, I don't have one. Oh, come I mean, on. I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not a legal a scholar. And, and one, of the, one of the reasons, you know, I, I enjoy speaking to groups like the Chicago Bar Association or, or others is to in a sense, be a provocateur and to put that question in front of them yeah. and say, okay, how do, we, how do we do this? Yeah, start the conversation. And another area, and again, this goes back to internet, and it, and it sounds like I'm an opponent of the First Amendment, which I clearly am, am not. I mean, I'm a, a, but the issue of anonymity. Anonymity I encourages, yeah. encourages what we're seeing as an increasing problem today, the volume of threats yeah. against public officials, all the way from poll workers and school board members on up to the Senate and federal judges, are today faced with a volume of the most vile threats. Right. They have to worry about their own security. They have to worry about the security of their families. And as a consequence of this, not only are an enormous amount of resources being devoted to this growing problem, but a number of dedicated public servants are simply saying, this life is untenable. Yeah. And, and they're understandably getting out. But then who does that leave to operate our government, those who are completely comfortable with a more thuggish behavior. Right. It corrodes our democracy. It changes the complexion of our political class. Yeah. And, you know, you were talking about um, the origins of the First Amendment before. It seems to me that when, you know, the founders were drafting it, it was an age where if you wanted to be heard, you stood on a soapbox in the middle of the town square and everyone knew who you were and you had to take responsibility for what you said anonymity people are much more willing to be you know i don't know if brave is the right word but bold reckless with their speech you know free speech could come out of your mouth but there was a nose to be punched yeah, right. and, and 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 so again i'm not assaulting the constitution yeah. here and that has to be understood and and i don't have an but this, answer this is a to spectrum this. And I, and I also agree that there has to be a tension on this. I yeah. mean, people say, well, we can't resolve this. There's tension. And the answer is, you're damn right there's tension, and that's a democracy, and that right. tension should be there. We should be arguing this constantly. Yeah. And that's the other, in a sense, thing that I think is a challenge to us. 
in dealing with our current circumstances, let's not try to have any illusion that we are going to resolve our political differences. Let's let's be careful, number one, of an overreaction, Mm. and let's be equally careful of overreach. Law enforcement can provide the guardrails for behavior. It can deal with violent offenders. By treating the actions as crimes. Yes. It cannot strip mine every seam of bigotry from American society. Right. It is the wrong instrument to achieve fundamental changes in attitudes. It cannot become a crusade, you know, for for tolerance. Yeah. I'm not saying those aren't goals, but those are national goals yeah. that require a national discussion from the citizen to the Oval Office. Right. That's something we're all involved in. Right. So part of the pragmatic strategy is, yes, the enforcement of the law is an essential, but by itself insufficient solution. Mm-hmm. And we really do as a society, if we're going to stay together as a society, have to learn how to Number one, accept differences, but at the same time, be able to govern a people who historically are not easy to govern. Yeah, we're a fractious, cantankerous bunch. You know, we we had dinner last night, and something you said really stuck with me. We were talking about the political divide, and you were talking about, you know, Russian intelligence efforts and what the Russians do with American social media to American consumers, how they don't make up controversies and issues, but they amplify them. And I I thought that was enlightening and made me pause and think about some of my own thoughts and predilections and where they may have been coming from. Can you explain that to our audience a little bit? Well, look, many, many years ago and in in, in years after the Russian Revolution, the Russians conducted propaganda operations, information operations, influence. Yeah. And, and they were good at it, but there was an ideological component to it. Right. Today, it is different. What the Russian influence operations look for are issues that divide us, any contentious issue. Pre-existing issues. Pre-existing. Yeah. They're not making up these they don't, issues. They don't, they don't create them. Yeah. They exacerbate right. the differences. How? They deepen the divides. And what they do is they watch what's happening. They will select messages. that This is locally produced, made in yeah. the USA content. Right. That they will then pick the extremes of that on both sides. Mm-hmm. And through their bots and through their influence operations, they will amplify the extremes yeah. of the argument. So right. it is not that they are creating the differences but they are amplifying the extremes Mm. and pulling us apart. And it is part of a strategy basically that it will weaken us. I mean, and and this is not just taking place in America. It's taking place across the world. I mean, you know, you look at some of the countries, Russian finance political parties are far-right parties in in many places in Europe. Hungary, Eastern Europe, yeah. And it doesn't make any difference. 
if you can have those on the far right and you crank those up and support those financially and with information operations and those on the other side and you do the same thing, then you've created a system that is at war with itself and it's weakened because of that very fact. Okay, we're um, running out of time. I want to end this on some kind of high note so that people don't walk away completely depressed from this interview. Where are we going with all this? Again, look, I tell people, you know, I'm, I was born in Chicago and, and my father and I remain lifelong Cubs fans and Bears fans. And so that... Hey, Cubs got one in a few years you ago. Know, yeah. yeah, and so that, it, 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 I suppose, explains part of my optimism and hope. But yeah. I, I honestly, I do think, I, I, I do think that it's not necessarily going to be a matter of statutes. It's not going to be a matter of, you know, in every case of, of a prosecution or not. It really involves all of us, and it requires courage and with calm resolve and with common sense and with the realization that this is going to take a long time, that we are still very much a work in progress, we can get through this. We have been through dark moments in our history. As I say, we have a high tolerance for violence, which is both unfortunate but good from the standpoint of resilience. And if we can maintain the trust in our institutions and in each other, we will survive. And being an older guy, I have to tell you, that's about as good as it gets. Amen. We'll be right back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Hey, Guy, what's up? Just having some lunch, Conrad. Hey, Guy, do you see that billboard out there? Oh, you mean that guy out there in the gray suit? Yeah, the gray suit guy. There's uh, all those beautiful, rich, leather-bound books in the background. That is exactly the one. That's J.D. McGuffin at Law. He'll fight for you! I bet you he has got so many years of experience. Like decades and decades. And I bet, Guy, I bet he even went to a law school. Are you a lawyer? Do you suffer from dull marketing and a lack of positioning in a crowded legal marketplace? Sit down with Guy and Conrad for Lunch Hour Legal Marketing on the Legal Talk Network, available wherever podcasts are found. And we're back with Stranger in Legal Fiction. Our audience knows the rules. I've done some research, found one strange and real law that's on the book somewhere in the United States. I've made another one up. I'm going to quiz Brian to see if he can distinguish strange legal fact from fiction. Brian, are you ready to play? Ready to go. All right. Two possibilities. Option number one. In Destin, Florida, local ordinance provides a legal definition for bad roosters, bad dogs, and bad cats and makes owning such baddies a civil infraction, punishable by up to $100. That's option number one. Bad roosters, bad dogs, bad cats, defined by statute. Option number two. In Toledo, Ohio, it is illegal to make faces at any kind of dog that is either not owned by you or by a member of your household. No making faces at a stranger or neighbor's dog. Which is real? Which one is fake? <laughs> Um, 
Boy, it's amazing what politicians do to pass laws. I'm I'm going to this is nothing more than a guess. I'm going to say the the Florida law on bad roosters is the real one. And you'd be right. What gave it away? <laughs> I can actually imagine a situation where certain kinds of animals could be uh regarded as a nuisance, disturbing, uh, and lead to fines. Yep. I have a harder time imagining making faces at, at dogs. Okay, so <laughs> yes, I completely agree. And it turns out, I looked it up, the bad dog, bad roosters, I don't know, roosters seem random, bad cats, it all just basically you know, came down to whether they'd bit someone before. Okay, that makes sense. A little, it's weird that they define it that way, but okay. The Ohio law, I saw repeated throughout the internet as a real law in both Ohio and Oklahoma, repeated hundreds of times on law firm websites, you know, that were trying to drive clicks. I could not find it. I went into the statutes. I could not find it anywhere. So talk about disinformation. That's an example of that right there. It, it, it certainly is. But that is going to be our show for today. A very big thank you to our guest, Brian Michael Jenkins, not only for a stimulating and informative conversation, but for all the good work you're doing, sir, trying to tamp down these fires uh, that are increasingly defining our country's political discourse. Thank you very much. Uh, I know I speak for everyone in our audience when I say that I hope you succeed and that decision makers in Washington, every town, city, and state capital in the country listen to what you have to say. I also want to give a special thank you to CBA President Tim Tomasic of Tomasic Coat and Casserman. Tim flew Brian here for the interview and a special program that we're having at the CBA later today. And as that kind of effort indicates, Tim has been the transformative and yet also restorative president that the CBA needed coming out of the pandemic. He's a great bar leader, and we've been very lucky to have him at the head of the CBA this last year. As always, thanks to our executive producer, Jen Byrne, Adam Lockwood and Ricardo Islas on sound and everyone at the Legal Talk Network family. Remember, you can follow us and send us comments, questions, episode ideas, or just troll us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at CBA at the bar, all one word. You can also email us at podcast at chicagobar.org. Please also rate and leave us your feedback on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, Audible, or wherever you download the podcast. It helps us get the word out. Until next time, for everyone here at the CBA, thank you for joining us and we'll see you soon at the bar. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed it. Once again, you can check out more episodes of At the Bar and Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network site or wherever you find podcasts. We will return with Craig in our next Lawyer to Lawyer episode. I'm Kate Nutting. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think Lawyer to Lawyer. <laughs>